Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles Next Generation. I what? am the man Stop. in the past. What? Ghost Chronicles what? Uh, not, it's not Next Generation? No. Oh, okay. It's um, Ghost Chronicles Baby and Toddler Instructions. Morning Edition? Baby and Toddler Instructions? Morning Edition? International. Oh, International. Oh, I remember that one, yeah. <laughs> Okay, we are, uh, yeah, Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ron Kolick. He is Steve Parsons. And there you go. So yeah. uh, we are live on uh, Tojinet, Pararex, uh, Planet Paranormal, your tune-in app, the Ghost Box, perhaps. Don't know. Yeah, and, we're, we're like, we're like you two were appearing on your iTunes, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Yep. That's what yeah, I was you were, With you being old, you won't understand that one. No. Oh, there's a woodpecker outside my window. Really? Yeah. I have that ADA, so I, 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 I kind of drift sometimes. <laughs> uh, anyways, we got a great show today. There's a squirrel in the Christmas tree. I, yeah. Uh, oh, red tractor I went by. Um, anyway, you will be here. You will be here with just a one-shot day, right? Uh, this time tomorrow will be mid-Atlantic, winging my way toward you. God help America. Yeah. Well, God bless America, sorry. Yeah, same thing. Yeah. So, uh, you know, before I get into the show, um, we have uh, an, another friend that's coming over, and uh, Stephen Scott from Scotland. And I got this thing going over there about Scottish independence. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't get, I don't get that. I mean, it's not like it was yesterday that the British invaded them and, and impounded them into torture uh, and, and and destitute. But um, why we all were of a sudden? We were why, why all of a sudden are they? Is this independence thing's going on? I, I don't understand it. I don't know. Um, right. Well, let me. I mean, Gordon, our guest later, is actually in Scotland. But let me briefly explain it from an English perspective. Um, Scotland got itself into huge financial difficulties back in the 18th century when they decided to set up a colony in mid America. In the uh, sort of they called it the Darien Gap. It's the bit between the Ram Panama Way. They they thought that they could build a big complex there, put a canal through, charge the world trade, make lots of money, bust the country, England had to come in and bail them out. And we made them sign the Act of Union so we could have a really cool flag. Yeah, but that was a long time ago. It's not like it was 10 yeah, years. Yeah, but, you know, they've only just sobered up. I mean, we, we, fought, a, we fought, a, fought a huge war where more Americans died than in, in all the other wars combined. Uh, to keep our our country together, so I don't understand why the British just don't invade Scotland and put them back under their thumb again. Well, the British can't invade Scotland because um, that would mean because they're British at the moment, and so are we. The English could invade Scotland, but historically we've given up doing that because uh, we've it's we've a pain become, in the ass. 
Well, no, the English are, have always been a very peace-loving nation, uh, very, mm-hmm. very f- uh, fond of, you know, a quiet life. Uh, yeah, we yeah, don't, yeah. We don't invade anybody. We, we just right. bring them civilization. You just send us all your TV shows, that's all. Yeah, we just bring them civilization and law and rail- railways and roads. Uh, anyway, I, I, thanks for clearing that up for me. I was I just, just curious about it. And, uh, okay. You know, I, I have nothing against Scotland. Some of my best friends are Scots. Well. There you go. There you go. Well, you can talk okay. to our guests so anyway, in Scotland. So we're wasting all this precious time, which is another four minutes. Um, so we actually have a, uh, a guest on today. And you, you actually got this guest for me, which is kind of nice of you, Steve. I want to thank you so much for that. Because I was watching this uh, cool show, and um, it was about uh, these glass forts. And I had never heard about this. So... You went out, as, as you always do, and found us a real hotshot guest to uh, explain all this to me. So would you like to introduce a guest for us? I'm very pleased to reintroduce Gordon Rutter, who's been on the, the program pre, uh, before. Uh, he is an expert and guru. And he came back. Or, or, yeah, all things Fortean. And Fortean refers to Charles Fort, who is a collector of all things Fortean. Um, and he was the only person I could think of who would have the necessary expertise, short of Google, to answer your question about the glass forts, which I have heard of but don't know very much about. So uh, I, I set Gordon a challenge. Uh, would he come back on the show for a second time? Would he, would he honour us with his presence and explain to you all about these glass or vitrified forts that they have up there in Scotland that have got nothing to do with the English? Aren't they in Ireland too? Uh, they're, they're they're actually yes, but I only know I'm only aware of ones in Scotland. When you first posed the question to me, but subsequently I've discovered they're a bit more widespread. Right. Uh, but Gordon is the man to talk to, so I'd like to welcome onto the show Gordon Rutter. Hi there, guys. Good to be here. There you go. See, and you're in Scotland as well, aren't you, Gordon? Yes, but you're in. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Yes. yes. Was my was, was well, my summing I up of the history? A lot of flag waving going on over there? Uh, yeah, 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 sick of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a bit mental at the moment is the honest truth. Um, everyone is is claiming victory. Everyone's claiming they're, they're in the lead. And uh-huh. the television is just full of it. And the, the actual referendum is this Thursday and whoever, whichever way the vote goes, there's going to be a lot of very unhappy people on Friday because we will know the result on Friday morning. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting. As, as I saw that the Loch Ness Monster actually moved to England, like, because of this thing, and, you know, and I know that's true because I read it on the Internet, so... Uh, <laughs> I wish I'd gone with her. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we didn't we didn't uh, really call you on to talk about Scottish independence, and God bless you, Scotland. If you win, good for you. Um, and if you lose, good for you. Good, good for you too. Um, but anyways, <laughs> um, glass forts. What do you know about them? Yeah, I mean the, the the proper name for them is is vitrified forts rather than glass forts, but glass forts does describe the phenomena because what it is it's basically a hilltop fort so uh, uh, basically a ring made of stones which is a defensive mound 
and the rock that has made these things up. And we're talking of walls that can be 12 feet tall, four, five, six, seven feet wide, so quite big structures. But the rock that has made these up and has been put there by people has has melted and the outer part of that has 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 turned to a glass-like material so it seems as if by appearance that there's nothing holding the rocks together there's no cement or anything like that holding things together and there's some sort of heat that's been applied perhaps and that heat appears to have, have melted the rock to such a degree that the rock has become molten and it's actually flawed over the surface of the walls, binding the whole structure together. Um, as, as Steve said, there, there are vitrified forts outside of Scotland, but the greatest uh, number of these things is is in Scotland. There are something like a hundred vitrified forts known throughout the world, of which 70 are in Scotland. They're all on the top of hills, they're all in good defensive positions, and they're all mysterious. Because, quite frankly, if you do that sort of thing to to a rock fort, what you're actually doing is you're weakening it. So, yeah, you're binding the rocks together, but the rocks become weaker than they would have been if they'd just been left alone. So it's not something that's been done for defensive reasons. There are a, a large range of, um, of possible explanations, as, as I'm sure you can imagine. But, you know... It's all supposition. Nobody knows the truth. Nobody knows exactly how it was done. Again, there are there are various theories that have been put forward, but from the period, there's no writing, there are no records of anyone who observed these things being produced. So we're left with these dotted around the countryside, um, none of them in England or Wales, um, 70, as I say, in Scotland, and the remainder in sort of Ireland, Londonderry, Cavan, places like that. But there's a few in sort of Bohemia, Saxony, and, and along the Rhine in Germany as well, um, mm -hmm. one or two in France. So, you know, it's not even a logical distribution for, of, of a people moving around around the world. You know, what's interesting about it, Gordon, is that uh, I, I actually saw a show on it, so, you know, it's all true. But uh, it was <laughs> it was about this, this guy, and they actually tried to reproduce this, and what they did is they, they bore into the rocks, and they stuck a lot of timber in it and, and lit a huge fire and um, tried to melt the rocks, basically. And they did accomplish it a little bit, uh, but it it just didn't make sense because the amount of lumber needed to do this would have been equal to all the trees in Scotland, so or half the trees in Scotland. So it, it didn't make sense that way. So we don't even know how they did it more than why they did it. 
Exactly. I think what you've just described there was the experiment conducted by Ian Ralston, who was an archaeologist. Yes. And he, he was hired by the producers of Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. And in 1980, they did a show which included a segment on the uh, on the vitrified forts. And as you say, Ralston and a whole team of guys set about trying to recreate this. They built, they built a length of wall. It was about 25 feet long by about eight feet wide. They had wooden posts running through it all the way along and then they literally buried this thing under wood, set fire to it all, stood back and then thought, oh flipping heck, that wood's burning really quickly. We'd better go and get some more. So they got more, piled that on, that burnt quickly and they just kept adding and adding wood and eventually they ran out of wood and, and they started getting uh, material from a local uh, rubbish tip. So yeah. there's, there's bits of furniture and all sorts of things put on to keep this fire going. And they had it going for 24 hours just for this tiny section of wall and they reckon it took several tons. They weren't specific about how much wood, but several tons was the way they described it. And by the end of that they pulled the whole wall apart and they found found one bit of rock that showed a bit of vitrification. So yep. nowhere near the whole outside of the thing, nowhere near this, this sort of glass-like material running down and binding everything together. And as you say, to do something the size of the forts that, that we have would have required massive, massive quantities of wood. And it's not just the actual quantity, but it's getting it to these locations. I mean, these are these are usually on the tops of hills, and you've got to carry all that wood up there, and you've got to ask why. Crazy. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. That's, that's the interesting thing. And, and uh, Steve, are you still with us? Are you sleeping for your trip? No, I'm trying to. I'm waiting to get a word in edgeways. Well, you know what? Can Not you, a chance. When you, have a chance, <laughs> when you have a chance, Steve, can you go and, and find us a picture of one of these glass forts and post it on our page so that we can... Uh, have it there. Yeah, but, but first of all, I because oh, you want to talk? I, okay, we'll let it. Yeah, well, I didn't get much of a chance last week either. Uh, <laughs> um, I I uh, didn't know very much about these forts either, and so mm -hmm. I had a I had a look through the different uh, archaeology books and pages, and I discovered there was an experiment carried out in the 1930s, uh, which they built a section of wall 12 feet long. Um, and they used, you know, they, they set it on fire. Uh, this was carried out by an archaeologist. Um, that was uh, Gordon Child and Wallace the, Thorncroft, I think you'll that's find. That's the one. That's the yep. one. And they, they actually did, yeah. did vitrify some of the rock. Yeah, but well, you're talking a very minute thing for the amount of wood that required to do it. That's the problem. Well, it doesn't, I, the information I have doesn't actually say how much they managed to vitrify. Well... Um, of course, you've only done a little bit of research, unlike Gordon. Exactly. Uh, well, exactly. Uh, he's read Wikipedia, let's be honest. Yeah, he's I, I, I haven't, actually. It was an archaeological uh, page. Really? Yeah. Oh. So... Okay, uh, actually, actually, um, I, I happen to have just literally put my hand on a book. I'm 
calling you from my library here. Um, and it was March 1934, and they built a wall 12 foot long, 6 feet wide, 6 feet high, and that was in Stirlingshire. They used old fire-clear bricks for the faces, pit props as timber, and they filled the cavity between the walls with small cubes of basalt rubble. Finally, they covered the top with turf, then they piled about four tonnes of scrap timber and brushwood against the walls and set fire to them. Despite a snowstorm, the wood caught fire, and three hours later the wall began to collapse. This exposed the inner core, which, fanned by a strong wind, grew hotter and hotter. They went through the remains of the wall the next day, and they found they had successfully reproduced the kind of vitrification they had seen in ancient forts. They managed to do it again in 1937 when they fired another wall uh, actually physically on the site of, uh, of an already produced vitrified fort. It doesn't say how much vitrification they actually were able to produce, unfortunately. That is the key. Yep. Yeah, I mean, as I say, the, the recreation they did for Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World was literally one stone, and they were regarding that as a success. Um, these guys are regarding it as a success as well. It could have been a larger amount. It could have been a similar amount. I don't know. I, don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's interesting to say it's a success, but what are they saying it's successful? Why they were able to vitrify a few stones versus, yep. you know, what, you know, to me, to reproduce an entire fort, uh, that's a success, not just a couple of stones. That's it. I mean, it could just be an argument of we've shown it in principle. Everything else is just scaling it up. Um, so it sounds like parasites to me. It sounds like parasites to me. <laughs> yeah, well, it, actually, you're probably right because, like parasites, they uh, they managed to make it reproducible. So it's proper science. They did it twice <laughs> in '34 and '37. Ah, okay, very good. So, anyways, uh, what I've posted the picture, by the way. Oh, I posted the article. You asked me to post a picture, so I did. Well, it. you're so slow. You know what can I tell you? Um, anyways, <sighs> Gordon. Yep. Any, any. Uh, what are the theories of how this was done? Is is that the the only theory of how those was forts were made? No, there's a there's another theory. There's a whole range of theories, some slightly more sane than others, is the truth of the matter. Um, there's one theory, for example, which states that they used um, lightning rods. So they actually built the fort and then they put lightning rods in to attract the lightning, and it was the hits of lightning on these forts that was vitrifying them, and then they would move the... Um, the lightning rod around the fort to try and get it to strike at different locations, presumably waiting for the thunderstorm to stop rather than running around holding a lightning rod in the middle of a thunderstorm. Gads, that would take them. That would take them absolute centuries because exactly. I, I, and again, years why? ago, I used to collect fulgurites, which are Bad. the um, the lightning strike into sand where it vitrifies the sand, and the they're the, they're the thickness of a finger. You know, if you're lucky, you get, you know, a big fat fulgurite about the width, the width of the diameter of a human finger. So to do a fort with a couple of lightning yeah. rods, yeah. they'd still be at it. 
I mean, uh, you know, that's one of the theories. Another theory is that we had atomic warfare. And these forts date from um, round about 700 to 300 years BC. Um, so they're talking of atomic warfare in that area and the intense heat from the atomic blast. But there's a hundred of these throughout the whole, you know, throughout Europe, various parts of Europe. Are we to believe that they had lots of little nuclear um, fallouts, uh, sorry, nuclear fights in those areas, and there's no evidence of radioactivity now, and other areas weren't affected? Because it's just the forts that are affected. It isn't the, the rock that they're that the rest of the hill is made of. And if if it was something like a nuclear blast, then, you know, the whole area would presumably be affected rather than just the fort. Gordon, I, 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 you did allude to some of the more fantastic theories. And uh, I, when one first mentioned it, the first thing that popped into my head, because I remember the Arthur C. Clarke program um, and the book that came with it, and it did allude to uh, an alien... Um, Intervention as well, didn't it? Some sort of space weapon being used against yeah. the Picts. I mean, that's the one that works for me. I'm well, joking. Uh... I'm joking. <laughs> that, was, that, that was always my favourite. This idea of uh, the little green men shooting laser pulses at, at the uh, at the Stone Age Picts. It seemed a fair fight. Just... It's just as believable as some of the other uh, explanations, quite frankly. It's it's something we don't know. Consequently, we can come up with all of these ideas. And, yeah, aliens waging nuclear war by firing at lightning conductors that are put on top of burning piles of logs surrounding forts is the only conceivable answer, as far as I can see. Good. You're a collector of... Yeah, you're a collector of Fortiana uh, stories and tales. Um, I think it might just be worth touching on what Fortiana is and who Charles Fort was. I know we introduced him at the start of the show very sort of tongue-in-cheek and briefly, but just before we come up to the break, it might just be worth uh, recapping. Good point, Steve. Good point. Yeah, sure. Uh, Charles Fort was an American author, and he was interested in the strange, the bizarre, the unusual. And he collected newspaper reports, scientific journal reports, basically any sort of report that he could come across um, relating to things that he called the damned data, information that science ignored. And... The sort of definition of that is is very vast. If we look back a bit before Fort's time, we had in the 18th century, we had some of the most famous scientists of the day saying that meteorites can't possibly exist because everybody knows that there are no rocks in the sky. Therefore, there are no meteorites. People were finding meteorites. People were even seeing meteorites come down and then being able to recover them afterwards, yet still the scientific authorities of the day were saying these things can't possibly exist. Of course, now we know the truth behind meteorites, but that is a classic example of damned data, of information that people were reporting in all honesty, yet was 
because it did not fit within the current paradigm, was being ignored. It wasn't even being investigated by the scientists. So Charles Fort was collecting all of this sort of thing, and he eventually published it in four different books, uh, Book of the Damned, New Lands, Law, and Wild Talents. And these set out his ideas and, you know, give his data that he's collected, complete with a commentary. And one of the problems is he has a, a very specific style of writing and a very specific sense of humour. And this puts a lot of people off um, reading his works, which is an absolute crying shame, because there's a lot of a lot of incredible information in there. And, you know, you name it, he looked at it. He, he didn't have a hobby horse about any particular aspect of it. And he investigated everything he reported it, and he left it to other people to do a lot of the on-the-ground on work. And I think one of the greatest things that he said was that he could think of no idea that wasn't worth wearing for a time. In other words, if you come up with an idea and it seems to fit, then fine, go with it. But, and this is the key thing for Fort, if new information comes along that disproves that idea, don't hold on to the old idea. You know, take the new information and try and put that in and see what you come up with. And for me, that that is science in actual fact. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, Fort was, generally speaking, um, approaching the, the, the paranormal, the unusual, with a scientific view viewpoint. He probably wouldn't have appreciated that himself, but that's the way I take it. And ever since his work, there were a lot of people who found it very interesting. And there was a Fortean society formed during his life, which he refused to join. Um, and various Fortean societies came up over the years and existed. And uh, the magazine Fortean Times came out in 1973 and still going strong. Uh, International Fortune Organisation, still going strong, Info, Fate Magazine, obviously. Uh, the Edinburgh Fortune Society has been going since 1999. So there's a lot of people following his work, putting it forward, and just putting out extra information about the sort of things that Fort would have been interested in if he were around today. Where would be a good place for people listening to start to you know, get involved? Or, or you said he's the, uh, a go-to figure. How would they get get the information? Um, I mean, it depends how deep and how much work they want to put into it. If they just want to skim across a lot of things, uh, something like Fortune Times Magazine, which is a monthly magazine, uh, that's a great place to start because it's a mixture of very small snippets and also more in-depth articles. So if you're just starting it, you can, you can basically look into the smaller articles and when you get more interested, you can go for the larger ones or you can go to one of the groups such as the Edinburgh Fortune Society, they hold talks the same with Info, they hold um, cruises and weekend events and things like that. So it's a place to go to meet like-minded people, to hear people who've done this research and have been able to you know, disseminate their ideas. 
as I say, Charles Fort's books are available. Um, there are other authors who've, who've carried on their work, so many. Um, possibly a, a, an easier read is something like Unexplained Phenomena by Bob Ricard and John Michel. That's, uh, that's an easier read than Fort's books and um, much more up-to-date and thoroughly recommended. Okay, Gordon, I have to uh, interrupt you because we have to take a break right now. Anyways, you are listening to Ghost Chronicles International right here on Tojinet, Pararex, Planet Paranormal, and beyond. And our special guest today is Gordon Rudder. And we'll be right back after the following messages. Monday mornings just got scarier. Tune in every Monday at 11 a.m. for another episode of Ghost Chronicles Morning Edition with New England's own Van Helsing, Ron Kolick, and his inquisitive travel companion, Lou Blassie, the professor. Hey, that's me. Each week we'll delve into the realm of the supernatural where all that is is not what it appears to be with remarkable guests, spirited conversation, and the occasional voice of the deceased. We'll bring you a whole new meaning to the term dead air. Ghost Chronicles, Mondays at 11 on Eagle Radio 1110. Welcome to Tokinet, radio with a cutting edge. Feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more, all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place, an oasis in this hectic world. Mysterious and spooky, they all talk ugly gooky, the Parax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parax family. They're strange, deranged, unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew, it's time to rendezvous as we give awards to the Parax family. Alright. Hi, I'm Ron Kolek, author and lead investigator of the New England Ghost Project, New England's own Van Helsink. And I'm Ann Kerrigan, the blonde bombshell, and I'm the lead investigator of East Bridgewater's Most Haunted. And we'd like to invite you to tune in. Ghost Chronicles, the next generation. Every Wednesday night. At 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on www.toginet.com. So, so yeah, what are they going to hear on this stupid show? What are they going to hear? They are going to hear things that they can't believe are happening. Like uh, Beyond Bizarre. And Cemetery Tripping. 
Oh, that's your deal, right? Absolutely. Yeah, one of these days you're going to get uh, so scared of one of these cemetery tripping things that uh, you'll, I'll have to get a new co-host. <laughs> I am brave beyond belief. Nothing yeah, we'll see. scares me. So anyways, if you're bored and you got nothing to do on Wednesday night, tune in to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with Anne and Ron. See you then. And the beating of somebody's heart or the galloping horseman of the apocalypse bring us back into part two of Ghost Chronicles International. You're hopefully listening to us live on Togginet or Para-X or one of the other broadcast channels. Alternatively, you might be listening to us on iTunes or the podcast. Uh, the show is being hosted by New England's very own Van Heflin and from here in the UK, me. And our guest tonight is 14 expert guru Sage and uh, now we've discovered a glass fort expert to Gordon Rutter, a uh, member of the Edinburgh 14 Society, which he was talking about before the break. Now, obviously, Gordon, I know that you're a member of the Edinburgh 14 Society, um, so I think it's a good opportunity to give them a little bit of a plug. A Who, plug? What, where, when, and when do they meet? It's Et almost cetera. as if you read my mind, Steve. <laughs> um, <laughs> the Edinburgh Fortune Society meet on the second Tuesday of every month, apart from August, because we have the Fringe Festival here in Edinburgh, and in December we have our Christmas meal. So we meet for a lecture ten times a year. And we meet in a pub, which is a tremendous place to have a fortune talk because everyone's nice to each other and they're all relaxed and you you get a chance to have a few drinks with a few like-minded people and we meet from 7.30 till till we're finished which is usually between 9 and 10 o'clock um and we have a website, edinburghfortunesociety.co.uk. We have a Facebook site, uh, just do Edinburgh Fortune Society and that'll find us. And all the details of talks are put up there in advance. We had a talk on Tuesday of last week, so not yesterday, but a week ago. And that was actually my wife talking. And she was talking on the mystery of Flannan Isle. And she gave an absolutely excellent talk. I don't know if she could persuade her to to uh, to give a talk to you guys on Flannan Isle or not, but uh, you never know. She might be she might be amenable to that. But um, we have all sorts of talks. So last month, as I say, was Flannan, or this month, was Flannan Isle. Next month, we've got James Kerr, who will be talking on the 14th of October, and he'll be talking on modern curses. Then on the 11th of November, we've got Charles Paxton, who will be looking at numbers associated with the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, Charles is a statistician and a biologist by training. He's at, uh, based at St Andrews University and he's done a statistical analysis of uh, Loch Ness Monster sightings and he'll be telling us all about those. Then, as I say, December we'll be having the Christmas meal. Then in January we have got somebody booked in but he's got two or three possible talks and I'm not sure exactly which one he's going for. In 
February, we've got a talk on the possible survival of Adolf Hitler post-1945, looking at all of the different sightings, etc., etc. And sticking with the Nazi theme for some reason, in March, we've got a talk on Rudolf Hess and looking at all of the different potential conspiracy theories that are involved with that. But we've had, over the years, we've had talks on absolutely every everything you care to name. We've had ghosts, we've had EVP, uh, we've had end of the world, we've had talks on Charles Ford, we've had talks on Nessie, we've had talks on Jack the Ripper, uh, absolutely every a phenomenal range of things. I guess, what, we've been going 15 years, so we've had something like 150 talks, and that's just in our normal meetings. We've had um, some day events as well. Most recently, we were involved in, a, in an event which was hosted as part of the Edinburgh International Science Festival. I came on and, and spoke about that at the time, and that was looking at uh, the Loch Ness Monster, a whole day of talks related to that. I remember there's actually there's one talk that still hasn't happened, and I, I always feel eternally guilty trying to find the dates. Um, Why would that be, Steve? Why? <laughs> because it's the one I keep <laughs> promising to do. <laughs> I know, I know. But once my, we can pin you down to a date, we'll get you yeah. up. But you might once, have to have once, your passport Once my checked. wife stops having, yes, once my wife stops having children... And the bank that she works for stops oh, demanding. Wait a minute, wait, your wife stops having children? <laughs> and the bank that she works for stops more... You're not telling us, Steve? I don't, you say, well, you say, I'll be out of harm's way in 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> but then you will have to come back home. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, but uh, it, it, it will happen. It will definitely happen. I hope so. I hope so. Definitely. Um, and will you be able to understand his dialect over there? My dialect well, we, over where? We, we, we do dialect. have simultaneous Stop. translation. You oh, know, okay. Gordon, Gordon spoke earlier about one of the things that the Edinburgh 14 Society do. They, they meet in a pub and everybody sits around and it's very amicable and they all, you know, they have a speaker and they all swap yarns and tales about, uh, about 14 subjects. Well, I remember after a ghost fest in Edinburgh, Gordon and I did exactly that. And I, I noticed, Gordon, you said it was a 9.30 to 10 o'clock finish. Well, it certainly wasn't the night you and I were comparing cabinets and shelves and what uh, was on our respective cabinets and shelves. That, that was long after the bar closed. Fortunately, it was a hotel, <laughs> so it was a private bar. So we were basically able to continue drinking until we left, which I think was probably something about four or five o'clock in the morning, if not later. Yeah, but we, deci yeah. we decided that unanimously that uh, your collection of Fortiana uh, is vast by comparison to my own. I have a very understanding wife. And no children. <laughs> I, I think you have, would, would you like to share some of the highlights of your Fortian cabinets? Wow, the highlights. Um, ah, there's so many, uh, so many things I love. Pick your top three. I, Pick your top I have, three. I have a one-eyed pig staring at me at the moment. Um, it was a real pig. It was born, uh, I believe it was born dead. It's actually Canadian. And somebody got in touch with me and said, you know, oh, I've got this dead one-eyed pig. Do you want it? <laughs> and I said, of course I do. So... Uh, 
um, we had that taxidermed and shipped across to me. I've got a crystal skull. Uh, unfortunately, it's not of great vintage. It's a, it's a fairly modern one, but it is still an absolutely beautiful ornament. Um, I've, I've met, if you like, the, the Mitchell Hedges crystal skull, which is a, mm -hmm. irrespective of any, um, mysterious aspects associated with it it is just a thing of beauty and mine is a slightly smaller version of that and it's, yeah it's, i actually saw the poncho one uh which was interesting and uh i i they they believe this they were selling the water from poncho what they did it was one of the crystal skulls they would immerse him in distilled water for x period of time and then of course you could buy the bottles of distilled poncho water and uh, I bought one, of course. And the, the, the odd thing about it, though, is that Pacho went missing. He got left in a cab in New York City, and he's gone. Uh, I haven't been found yet. So me, being the smart guy I am, uh, had one of those Crystal Skull Vector bottles. So yes. now I have put the Pancho distilled water in the... Uh, Crystal Skull Vakta bottle, and now I have my own clone of Poncho. That sounds cool. That is impressive. Uh, clever, isn't it? Yeah, I must I'm admit, not just I might have. Of course, the sealed, unfortunately, the sealed bottle of Crystal Crystal Head vodka would have been f worth far more in twenty years than a bottle of distilled water that somebody's thrown a, put in a bucket and thrown a skull in it. Oh, so you say? It's all about how you market it. Well, actually, you could market grades of it because, obviously, if you you know you you fill the bucket, you throw the skull in, and then you you know you scoop the top off. By the time you get to the bottom of the bucket, the water will have been in contact with the skull for longer, so that's a premium brand. So you could charge yeah, extra for have, that. Right, I've got the you have the premium. Cut. I got the devil's got, cut. So you've got the dregs from the bottom of the bucket. The devil's cut. But in in, in but you in know the devil's cut. Devils, see, that's when they make whiskey and they and they put them in the barrel. You know, a lot of it evaporates, and the the uh, the part that evaporates is called the angel's cut, and the part that gets absorbed into the wood is called the devil's cut. And they actually take that out of the wood, uh, and that's real primo stuff. So there you go. Ah, I thought hmm. you chewed the wood. Well, they do it yeah, all the well, You do, I know that. Things. That's for sure. <laughs> Anyway, so that was two of your top three, Gordon. Yeah, I think uh, the third one I'm going to go for... Um, it's difficult. It's like choosing your favourite children. Um, I'm going to go for a replica of the Veil of Veronica. Now, the Ooh. Veil of Veronica Ooh. was supposedly a piece of cloth that was used to mop Christ's head as he was on the way to... to the, uh, to be crucified yeah. and afterwards the, the image of Christ appeared on it and it belonged to this woman called Veronica and um, oddly enough you know, yep. uh, <laughs> and later canonised as Saint Vileda <laughs> oh dear um, it's supposedly been passed down and the original is supposedly in the Vatican now there are, there are various other potential claimants to it but 
in the late 19th century, they actually produced replicas of the Veil of Veronica in the Vatican on cloth. And what they did was they touched these cloths to the original Veil of Veronica, which would make them themselves third-class relics. And I've got one of these cloths, but for something to be a relic in the Catholic Church, it has to have a certificate of authenticity, if you like, and that certificate of authenticity has to be signed by two cardinals. And on the back of my Veil of Veronica, I do have a certificate of authenticity, complete with seal, but unfortunately it's not signed by two cardinals. It's only signed by one cardinal. And a Pope. Um, pope Leo the Thirteenth signed this, so wow. I think he trumps a cardinal. So we're gonna play this know. one up with ship game again in a minute, because I'm just looking at all my religious artifact here. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, a papal signature and a third class uh, relic and the veil of Veronica. What well, have you got papal... to beat that, Steve? Well, well, well how, how about how about Paul how about let you go then I'll right. Well, it's a question. It's, it's actually a question. Um, no, no, can't a have a question. Get it up. A it. papal. Well, I am doing a papal blessing signed by, uh, by John Paul II, actually signed by John Paul II, and the second signature is Cardinal Ratzinger. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's. I mean, a a now now John Paul is a saint. That would be a relic. It's signed by the by the saint. And, and it has a, well, it's a double papal signature now. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have. Wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. You're not getting by that. I have the blood of St. Chabel, who is a, a Mideastern saint. Look him uh, up. Right. Holy blood. Hang on a minute. Uh, I got blood. Beat blood. Okay. Um, St. Pantaleon. Panther who? Pantelion, Spanish saint. Holy blood. I haven't you got holy what? blood. But he was another of the, uh, these bleeding saints where they... they oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they... Oh, this guy wasn't a bleeding saint. He just died. Well, uh, I've, I've got a selection of relics and... Yeah. I suppose... A, it, you, wait a minute. Have you got a nun's jawbone? Uh, I know where there is one. <laughs> <laughs> I have a I have a reliquary cross with a signed Wait, relic. Uh, should we get back to the show? Pius the twelfth. Uh, should we get back to the show? I've got the yeah. death mask of Pius the ninth. Oh, <laughs> <hey>. <laughs> we have to make up baseball cards with all, all this right, stuff. Okay. <laughs> got part of the, I've got part of the shawl of Saint Teresa of Lisieux. Let's all right, it. that's it. We're moving on. Okay. Oh, no. I didn't get to mention my wife's um, piece of vestments of. Pope John the Twenty Third. I'm sorry. Ooh, okay. Oh. Oh. <laughs> You're not. Uh, should we let the Should we let the guest win? Is that the gentlemanly thing? To yeah, do? we'll give it to. Him. Okay. <laughs> give it to. We'll give it to the guest. Yeah. Give it to the guest because I won't, you know. Uh, yeah, I won't talk about the the, the slivers of coffin from. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I won't mention any of that. Whatever. Anyways, uh, back to. Uh, uh, Gordon Rudder and Glass Forts because I didn't, we never finished that up. We, we touched the bottom. Uh, I mean, one of the things that we're not talking about and people might actually be asking is how come that we just don't carbon date them and know when they are? Because we don't even know when they were made, correct? 
Um, we think from all the evidence that they were made sometime between 700 and 300 BC. There, there have been sort of bits of bits of wood and things found in amongst them and underneath. So it's believed those bits of wood were were part of them. Um, at the time they were built, and obviously that can be carbon dated. But the, the rocks themselves, they can't be carbon dated because of the way the, the process works, because the, there's no carbon in the rocks. So we can only date carbon dating with, with carbon-containing things, such as, such as bits of wood. So it, it relies on on pieces of wood being found in amongst them. And, you know, that that is secondary evidence. But Everything suggests that there's some time between 700 and 300 BC, or before Common Era, if you prefer. 700 or 300 BC? Yeah, so, so two and a half thousand years old, roughly, yeah. Well, I mean, isn't there, and I don't know if they've done this yet, but I, I had uh, read something about uh, they were doing something called, what the hell is that called? Uh... Oh, come on, come on, where is it? Uh, anyway, I, while, while Ron's I, looking for that, I, we go back I, to the I, Holy Archaeomagnetic dating? That is not... Oh, is, is that where you're talking about the alignment of um, magnetic materials within the rock? Exactly. That... Yes. Yep. Um, Why didn't you just say that then, Ron? I did. I mean that that sure. tells us that tells us how old the rock is, but it doesn't tell us specifically when the fort was made. Okay. Because so, are there any theories of who made these lovely forts? I mean, basically, as far as we know, it, it's just the sort of indigenous peoples of the time in these in these disparate countries. And as to why they made them, um, I think I said earlier, it actually weakens them. So one possibility is that when they were finished with the forts, they did this so that neighbouring tribes could not use them themselves. Or another possibility... and. All of this is, again, just supposition. Another possibility is that um, when they took over some tribes, they would basically destroy their forts as, a, as an act of, of going nay, 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 um, just to, to show how great they were and how poor the, the others were. So can we tell by their locations and uh, the purpose of the forts in themselves and, and maybe what people used them or built them even? Um, I mean, as I say, it was just the, the indigenous peoples of, of those locations who, yeah. So na nameless indigenous people? Uh, well, just sort of in Scotland, the Celts and people like that. But the problem is that, Yes, you've got strong links between, say, Ireland and Scotland, both of which have forts. But when you're going across to Germany, what there's not the strong connection between them there. And we're finding these forts there as well. Um, so it's, uh, it's a mystery. Um, is there is there even an indication that they were made by the same people? By is there any you know signature in, in, in the way they're built, the shape of them, or anything like that? 
I mean, they're, they're the sort of thing you would make if you were given the problem of we've got this hill, it looks out over an area, we want to make a defensive fort, how are we going to make it? So you would just you would make it in a circular shape or um, an oval shape, depending on the shape of the ground that's there. So they all seem to be to be based in. in in the shape of the ground in the area, um, so there's there's no obvious kind of builder's marks. There's no there's no signature in that sense. The 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 uniting factor between them is this is this vitrification of the of the forts, the the anomalous bit. Gordon, one of the things I heard uh, put forward as a theory uh, as to why they were built, and it, one that kind of appeals to me, because uh, in medieval times they had a, a, a passion for painting castles white so they stood out on the ah, landscape yeah, yeah, yeah. could it you know if you make something that's all shiny and glass like it, it would be really sparkly on the hills do any of these have a, a you know a, an alignment that would that would allow that to maybe work with the setting or rising sun or you know to give them this standout effect on the landscape this awe effect shock and awe I mean, they do tend to be on the top of uh, of hills because those are defensive positions. So they would command a great view and also themselves be seen over a wide distance. So as you say, um, if they were if they were shiny like that, then yeah, that would be impressive, and it would it would show to people that you had made these things. So I, I like the sound of that, the fact that it's kind of an advert, if you like, to, to say we've got this impressive fort here. Um, the, I mean, look, I've got a map in front of me at the moment, and looking at this map, it's really just showing centres of population in the past as much as anything. There's no... There's no obvious alignments. You can see them moving along rivers and things like that as people moved from area to area. Um, you can see them in what were potentially close to important coastal locations. But there's, there's, there's no sort of arrangement in the sense of making some pattern on the landscape or anything like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the other the other interesting thing about it is what were they used for? Now, you just said you built a fort into a defensive position, but the the question is, I mean, were there structures in the insides of it? Are, are they all just the same sh uh, size or are they large? I mean, what was the purpose of the fort? Did they just, when, you know, the, the English invaded Scotland, did they just go run up into the fort? I mean, it didn't make sense. They would have no, no food, no no way to sustain themselves. Uh, you know, what was the purpose of the fort? I mean, the, the size of these things did vary. Um, I think the biggest ones were about 70 feet in circumference, something like that. So they're not huge. They're not something where you would necessarily retreat to if you were being attacked and you could all sort of defend in there because as you say you're, you're not going to be able to get all the animals in there you're not going to be able exactly. to get the food you're not going to be able to get the water in there so you're not exactly. going to be able to withstand a prolonged attack so it's not a defensive situation in that um in that respect it's just somewhere where perhaps you could withstand a, a short sharp fight rather than something something prolonged so mm -hmm. you know I'm i mean not... we caught 
we call them forts, but is there any indication that they were ever used as a fort? Well, I mean, perhaps they were ceremonial. Perhaps they were religious in nature. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the reason that they've been labelled as forts is because they do seem to be in obvious defensive positions. But as far as I'm aware, and I could be wrong on this, as far as I'm aware, I can't recall off the top of my head any findings of weapons at these locations. And if you had an active fort, then, you know, if you've got 70 of them in Scotland alone, some archaeologist somewhere is going to find somebody's dropped sword or you're going to find remnants of a dead body or, or some aspect showing that a battle definitely took place there. And as far as I'm aware, we're not finding that evidence. It may be that the forts were so damn successful that they actually just frightened everyone off and the battles didn't take place because they realised you were just so so powerful because of this fort. Well, anyways, that's the bell, so we actually got to wrap it up. But uh, the interesting thing about it is we, we just have to, and I don't know how we can solve this problem, Steve, and, you know, I'm sure you agree with me, is we just have to bring a medium in one of these, right? Absolutely. That's <laughs> case closed. Uh, it, could, it could be in sp the next edition of Spirit and Destiny magazine. Mm. Job done. That on time travel. Well, well, I'll just have to do it. If I get over there, we'll, we'll just drag up, a, dig up a medium, and uh, um, go check one out. There you go. Problem solved. Ghost Chronicles International solves the glass forts. There you go. Solved hey, it. last last week we solved Jack the Ripper, didn't we? Uh, actually, yes. Our guest, well, in fact, our guest from several weeks ago, Richard Jones, did successfully name the Jack the Ripper suspect that was apparently confirmed by a DNA test analysis that itself has now been questioned. And they don't call us a cutting-edge show. Huh. No, you see, we're light years so, ahead. Light anyways, years ahead. Gordon, we want to thank you so much for joining us. You are a fairly nice guy, as far as I can tell, and uh, if I ever get to... <laughs> if I ever make it up to one of those, those uh, conferences, I'd love to have a, a pint in a pub with you. Would be Bring your holy relics. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'll give you All a right, guided tour, Ron. Yeah, thank you. Steve, you can wrap it up for us. All right. Uh, what, what else can I say? It's been a great show. It's my last show here from the UK. Um, next week we go transatlantic and it becomes Ghost Chronicles face-to-face, -face, or should it be back-to-back? -back? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that's about it. Uh, you can... I don't know. You can check out uh, if you've, you've still got time to get tickets for Spirit Quest, which is this coming weekend. Um, yeah, go to our website. Any ghost I was just about to do any ghost project. The letter N, the letter E, <laughs> ghostproject.com. Or you can go to the Circles of Wisdom webpage to find out about ghostology. There's dining with the dead. There's mediumship. There's table dancing. There's pole dancing. There's everything. Yeah. Good night. God bless. But no rudder. <laughs> Good night. God bless. to ghosties, 
long-leggedy beasties and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good Lord.